Their kids are dismissed, and uh, that is a good time for them. If you are uh, a guest with us, we want to say thank you for choosing to worship at Covenant. Thank you for choosing this as part of your uh, faith journey. And so I don't know what brought you here, but I know that we're glad you're here. And so we want to say welcome. We want to say thank you for being here. One of the ways we get to know you is, is the card I'm holding. There are these cards on the back table out those doors and to your right where Liz will be sitting after the service. If you would write your name and your email on this card and drop it in the little basket on that table, take a coffee mug as our way of saying thank you for your info. Uh, we don't want your info so we can spam you and um, just barrage you with announcements or pleas for anything. We actually want to reach out and see how do we pray for you, how do we help, how do we join you on the journey. And so these are on that table, and I would invite you to uh, use them. We are finishing today our uh, Together series. And so this has been an exciting time. If uh, you are just kind of getting on board, this is a great time to be here. We're finishing this series that's been on marriage and, and relationships and singleness and how all that works, and then starting uh, next week, we'll be jumping into a brand new series on Exodus, and Exodus is going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm super excited for this. It's going to cover uh, not only uh, the month of April, but if you weren't aware, uh, Good Friday and Easter as well. And so we have a Good Friday service that is coming. This is a lot like Christmas, where we have a couple of churches in the city that we partner with. We say we are one church. That God didn't create a thousand churches, God created one, and it's our job to find unity and come together and make that apparent for the world to see. And so in Bowling Green, we do that with uh, H2O and Brookside. And so on Good Friday, we will be doing it at the Union Ballroom, okay? So 6.30 p.m., there's only one service, there is childcare, and we are going to come together on Good Friday, and among the three churches, uh, we're going to be one church, and we're excited about that. I think it's going to be a really neat uh, time, so I want to invite you to do that. And then on Easter, we will be here. And so Easter is uh, the 16th, then it's the third week of our next series. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. We're going to add some chairs and squeeze in real tight and just see what God wants to do. And so uh, I want to make you aware of that and make sure you're as excited as I am and you're not, but that's okay because you will be once we get there. Today, today we're finishing together. It's a series on marriage, parenting, sex, and singleness. We've talked about many of those things, what we haven't talked about yet, and in your final warning, if you um, have sensitive ears in the room, we're not going to do anything salacious, but today we talk about sex a little bit. Um, today we're going to address this thing that is out there. Some people would say, um, you know, we don't really talk about that in church. And I would argue that um, our kids are hearing about it in school, and you are inundated with it on television and the internet, and everyone else is talking about it. And so it's important for us to then talk about it and create not only uh, remove the delusion that it doesn't exist and we're all okay and we're in this bubble, but, but also build a biblical framework for how to see uh, what is out there. We can pretend it isn't out there. We can pretend that addiction in this area is not a real thing. We can pretend that lust or pornography or infidelity or abuse, that that's someone else's problem, um, but it isn't, right? It's our problem. And statistically, we would say that we have the same levels of all of those things in the church that society at large has. We have the same uh, ability to stumble that anyone else does. And so that's what we're doing today. We're building a biblical framework so that we can look at an issue that is everywhere and see it with right eyes, uh, see it as God would present it, not only for our own uh, sanctification, our own growth, and our own knowledge, but also I think it's important that when we have a neighbor or a coworker or a relative who stumbles into something in this area, that we don't come at them with uh, trite things that we think we might have heard or seen on a billboard, but we come with a biblical framework. So it's not only for us, but it's for those around us that we can help from a place of right thinking. The beautiful uh, thing about this is a lot of people 
even in this community, are open about this. They've struggled in these areas. They've struggled. They've been through it, found victory. And so this isn't something where we go, oh, we're going to learn about all this bad stuff. We're actually going to say, look, this is a challenge, and it can be a challenging thing in our culture as our culture gets more and more saturated. And yet, there is incredible victory to be found, and there are testimonies all over this room of people who have found that victory and have since turned the corner and see things a different way. The other thing that's true is there are a lot of people that are suffering in silence in American churches. That much we know to be true. There are a lot of people that say, because it's this, it's shame, and I'm not going to tell anybody. I tell you if I'm bankrupt, I tell you if I lost my job, but I'm not going to tell you if, if this is an issue for me because it's shameful. And we would say, don't suffer in silence because we won't make you do it. But if I had people raise hands and stand up and say, yeah, I've done that, or yeah, I've had that, or yeah, we were there, yeah, my marriage, yeah, you'd be shocked. There'd be more standing than sitting that have struggled and are struggling. And so the challenge today is not to struggle in silence. Are you sufficiently uncomfortable? Good, let's get started. We'll start by saying sex is good and the body is good. Sex is good and the body is good. God created sex. Okay, so a little bit of of Christian history. God creates sex for procreation and pleasure. And he makes our bodies as part of the image-bearing whole. Okay, he makes us part of the whole. Corinthians, if you look in your Bible, you read the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, they're littered with, with scripture, with passages, with teaching about how the body matters. The body is a temple, the body matters. Over and over in Corinthians, you see this theme sort of develop, and, and if you read it with a critical eye, you go, well, what is happening here? Even as early as the writing of Corinthians, uh, there was this sect of Christianity that started to deviate off of what was true in Scripture, is that God created human beings. He created them the shape they were for a reason. He created them to be together for a certain reason. God did this on purpose. And yet, there's this, this part of Christianity that starts wondering from that and going, yeah, but uh, we don't know. Why? Well, the Romans had uh, taken something that was good and it, it really messed it up. And you don't have to go very far in reading about Roman practices of the day and their carnal practices to see that there was a whole lot of stuff that, that shouldn't have been happening. And they had taken something that was good, and it, it was just poisoned. And so then in the second century, the Gnostics uh, are this heretical offshoot of Christianity. And the Gnostics come up with this idea that everything dealing with the material world, anything physical, is evil. It's evil, it's nasty, and it's degraded. And so the Gnostics come up with this idea. It's evil. It's great. It's degraded. It's nasty. It's, it's terrible. We should, we should avoid it at all costs. And this leads to two extreme paths in the church, and this is where we are today. There's one path that um, we would call the libertine path. These people say that because the body is degraded, because it's worthless, what's it matter? Let's just do whatever we want to do. And this trajectory leads us to where we are today with a hookup culture and Tinder. If you don't know what that is, don't ask. Cheap sex easily accessible, and easily disposable. The other side, that's one side, the other side is the ascetic side. And this is the people who go, well, since our body is degraded, since our body is evil, since our body is, is ugly, then, then we reject anything to do with the body as being good. And so they see it as something evil to be punished. So this one side has gone all free love, and the other side goes, you know what? It's evil. So, so not only is anything having to do with the body evil, married, unmarried, we don't care, it's just evil. It, it's, a, it's a necessity, but not something we want to have any part of. 
But then that leads into this trajectory that we're in today that you can see punishing diets over obsessive workouts or, or when we get in front of the mirror, we hate our hairlines or our thighs. The body, it's evil. It's warring against me. None of this is new. This is all grounded uh, in the view of, of the body and sex and where we got it wrong. So let's go back to where it was right in Scripture. Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, and then I'll read 18 through 23. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 18. And then the Lord, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God had uh, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, this man formed of dust, there was, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God, he caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay, so God creates humanity. Adam literally means dirt man, okay? God takes dust, breathes into it, and man is created. Everything so far that was created, as you walk through the creation story, the Lord said it was good. We've been through this. This is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And he sees Adam alone, and he goes, this is not good, right? Benediction, 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 malediction. I don't like this. We've got to fix that. So God fashions a partner, Eve, okay? And so here, a little aside, some people will bristle at this, right? We're academic community. We're uh, intellectually honest with each other. Some people will say, okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm not going to listen anymore because you say some being take a rib out of somebody and they, they formed into another person and why do we have the same number of ribs? And so we get caught on all these weird rabbit trails about do I believe that the literal, is it a metaphor, is it poetic language, is it, is it poetic license? What's happening with scripture? There are a lot of arguments to be had and we can have those all day long. The essential, the thing we want to focus on is what the truth of Scripture teaches is that God created. God created. God initiated. God created. And so all the arguments about literalism and metaphor don't apply in this moment. I'm happy to take you to coffee and have them. But the key is, the base is saying that Scripture is laying forward this idea that God has created. And when he thinks of creation, when he views creation, when he views man and woman, God looks and says it is good. It is good. He makes man and woman, and he sees them together. They're joined as one flesh, and he says, that's good. This partnership is good. I like the part where it says they were naked and not ashamed. This is hard for us. Our nudity is not evil. Everything in our culture, everything in our Christianity runs counter to that. Cover everything as much as possible. And don't you dare look if you see, you know, it's It's evil. And God would say they were naked and unashamed. Their nudity was not evil. Nothing in their design is embarrassing. 
It's not embarrassing. It's as created. And yet we know the story. Sin enters into the equation, right? Adam and Eve encounter sin, and then they have this cover-up, and then sin introduces shame into the equation. It causes man to hide. So what was once unashamed is now concealed in darkness. What was once free and not embarrassing is now something that we're knitting together fig leaves because what if he sees us? So now what was free and beautiful is done behind closed doors and in quiet shame. So how does this apply to marriage? Well, first, what we see is that God, in creating sex, creates it in a covenant relationship, in a marriage relationship, and it matters that it stays there. God not only allows sex, it is good, but he commands it. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Marriage, as we have discussed, is a covenant. It's a whole life promise to protection and faithfulness. This word, you leave your parents and cleave to your spouse, that cleave word. Remember, it's making a binding contractual commitment. This covenant makes for a single legal, social, and economic unit. And so when man and wife come together, they are legally, socially, economically, scripturally, they are, they are literally one. I said, when Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's not saying, Eve, I love you. He says, Eve, I am you. We're one. So to marry is then to donate oneself wholly to another person. We, we don't think of that. We're doing premarital counseling with some folks in here. And, and I don't say, hey, when you're, if you're going to get married, you have to think of it as donating yourself wholly to someone else. That's what it is. Sex is a powerful part of this. The Bible confines sex to marriage as the physical manifestation and sealing of that covenant union. This is its design. This is what it's for. Why? Because marriage is total radical vulnerability. Marriage is total radical vulnerability. It is unashamed lights on nakedness. How many of you feel a little bit uncomfortable with unashamed lights on nakedness? I'll be first. That's what marriage is. Marriage is looking at somebody and saying, here's who I am. When I married Steph, I took on every liability of hers. I didn't just get beautiful and talented and sweet, someone who loves Jesus. I didn't, I didn't just get that. I got all of her liabilities too. I took on her college debt. It was mine now. I took on her past mistakes. I took on her deepest wounds. They're mine. We share them. She doesn't just get me. Pretty great, right? She gets my future sin. She gets my oncoming midlife crisis. She gets every insecurity I hold. They're hers. Our junk belongs to each other, which makes marriage sound like so much fun. It's ultimate vulnerability, though. Our relationship became real when we talked about where we'd been. We're sitting in a Christmas tree lot, and I was selling Christmas trees for a good cause or something. I don't know, I think I sold anything. I probably gave them all away. But, and I said, so tell me about yourself. And she just, she, she told me. She's like, well, when I was this age, this, and then when I was this age, this, and then I did this, and I probably shouldn't have done, but, I, and I was like, wow. All right, my turn. And I said, well, I can beat that. And I laid out all my stuff. 
And I looked at her and I said, hey, I feel like we're going somewhere. There was a, a change in our relationship when vulnerability became more than a surface level. Oh, I think you're good looking. I think you're good looking. And it became, here's all my junk. And when we still looked each other in the eyes and went, yeah, I think this is going somewhere. It was different. Ultra, ultimate vulnerability is made physical in sex. It's the physical manifestation of this marital vulnerability. It is a way to say to one another, this is all that I am, and I'm giving it to you. In its simplest form, that's what that is. That's that lights on, unashamed, this is all that I am, and I'm giving it to you. My imperfections, my great desires, it's, it's yours. This is why infidelity in any of its forms is so damaging. Physical, digital, fantasy, private thoughts, all of it. It's so damaging because it's a rejection of your partner's vulnerable, whole self-offering in favor of a false fantasy. That's why it's so damaging. Because if we were designed to say, this is all that I am and I'm giving it to you, and when someone in a covenant relationship says, that's great, but I'm going to... It's a rejection of this thing that was laid down in front of them. The second most dangerous part of it, in addition to it just being a, a flat rejection there, is that anything in the sexual realm outside of that covenant relationship provides a physical and chemical gratification that is wholly incongruent and unsatisfying to the soul. Why? Because anything, outside, op- anything operating outside of its design is inherently unable to fulfill its purpose. Anything operating outside of its design is inherently unable to fulfill its purpose. I've talked about my car, my little red hatchback. I also have a snow shovel. It's a red snow shovel. So it's really cool. If I were to take my little red hatchback and I were to duct tape the snow shovel to the front, I could drive it around like a plow. And it would be really cute. But that's not the design. And and it would actually move some snow. Like this much at a time. It would move some snow. And so it would accomplish some some vague shadow of its purpose. Like I want to make this car... I want to make it a snow, a snow plow. Well, operating outside of its design, it's not going to happen. And so anytime we try to take something that was designed for A and make it work for B, we're always frustrated on some level that it's not. If we believe that God designed sex as a physical giving of self, as part of the whole life co- covenant of marriage, if we believe that, then no aspect of sexuality experienced outside of marriage will ever satisfy Ask those of us who have experienced it in both. I experienced sex outside of marriage before I'd met my wife. There was no satisfaction in that. There was fear. There was anxiety. And it's radically different now. Nothing changed physically. But outside of its intended zone, it wasn't right. Worse, it taints the perception of what's in marriage. Right, so this is kind of a pox on on American Christian culture. The number of married people who have a negative feeling about sex is astounding. There's shame and there's guilt and there's fear all wrapped up in something that God said is good. Why? Because a good thing has been poisoned by bad associations. Because we felt let down and disappointed, because we felt wounded and hurt by our experience of this thing outside of where it was intended, that when we finally get it to where it's intended, we can't see it for what it really is produces anxiety and shame and guilt and worry. Have you ever had food poisoning? You know, you have that really awesome shrimp Alfredo. You're like, man, that was so good. And three hours later, you're going, I, am, I hate it. And if you smell shrimp Alfredo ever again, you get your stomach turns. You go, no, 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 no. 
You don't forget that. That's the same thing. When we experience this, this beautiful God-created thing called sex, when we experience it outside of where it was designed, it's poisoned. And then we bring it in and we go, why doesn't this feel like it's a good thing? Why do I have shame attached to my, my intermarriage? I'm married to you. This shouldn't be hard. But it's so common. That's not to mention that the way your brain functions, your associations of sexual gratifications are seared into your brain. So we're going to talk about your brain for a minute. The release of endorphins is tied to the source of gratification. Endorphins is happy chemical in your brain. It's tied to the source of gratification. This is why we have irrational sports fans, okay? Because you're sitting on your couch one day, and, and your team does something that makes you feel more alive. You get an endorphin release, and you tie it subconsciously to the thing you just saw on television. My team won. That felt good. And so you commit to be there the next week and watch them again. And if they win again, or even if they lose sometimes, you're like, you know what, I, I'm part of something bigger. And this chemical release happens, and then all of a sudden, you have people say things like, I love the blank sports team. And you go, how did I get there? Well, it's a, it's a physical chemical reaction that happened over and over and over and over and over again. And it creates, actually, we, we love these teams. I love my favorite sports team. And, and they're just a business, right? The Steelers or the Browns or the Indians or the Cavs, they're no different than the Gap. They create a product. They sell it to us. We pay money for it. And it makes us feel good. That's all it is. And if it doesn't make us feel good, we cancel our season tickets and we say, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I don't like the way these pants fit. I'll shop somewhere else. That's all it is. And yet, I don't know many people that go, you know what, I, I, I love Old Navy. <laughs> They're having a sale. I am there. It's a utility. But we develop these things because our brains are transmitting chemicals that create this connection that all of a sudden we say, I love it. I can't imagine missing it. During sex, the ventral tegmental area, VTA of the brain, sees the greatest activation, okay? This is the area of your brain that is responsible for the release of dopamine, which is the brain's reward chemical. So during sex, this area of your brain that releases the reward chemical is the most active part of your brain. And what it does is it releases dopamine that travels all over your brain. Hippocampus and amygdala, which govern memory, they get reward chemical. Why? Because it sears into your brain a sexual gratification memory that you can come back to to know how to get that reward again. Certain behaviors equal reward. I'm going to come back to that. And it isn't just the activity. It's the activity plus the source of the activity. I'm coming back to that source. Life is good here. Your brain, you are wired. Here's what I'm getting to. You are hardwired to this. You were designed towards this. Otherwise, your amygdala, which gets this reward chemical, otherwise it shuts down. It grows quiet because it's the source of fear. The source of fear in your brain gets a reward chemical and otherwise shuts down. Why? Because in an intimate union as designed, there is no fear. There's perfect trust. Your hypothalamus, which creates the uh, oxytocin that is in your body then. This great trust chemical, the love chemical. It activates. Sex is designed to create trust and bonding, to reduce fear and anxiety, and to produce pleasure-reward in a virtuous cycle. God has wired you physically this way. That when you are with your one partner, it is a virtuous cycle of going, when we are together, it creates all of this safety and trust and security and pleasure and joy and love. 
And if it's just you and me, guess what? I'm going to be coming back for more, and it's going to make our relationship stronger and deeper. And as we drive down into it, it's a virtuous cycle that is intended to repeat on itself. Sex to pleasure to trust to reduced fear to bonding to sex. So wives, be the source of gratification. Realize this. Proactively meet needs. Seek to meet uh, your husband's needs and then seek to have your needs met in your husband. Husbands, the same. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Seek your wife to meet your needs. And then watch how your desire for your wife will grow. We are wired to grow in intimacy through sex. But it also shows us the danger. To use that incredible chemistry anywhere outside of a marriage, outside of its design, is trouble. Outside of a whole life commitment, it creates a doom loop. Instead of a virtuous cycle, it creates a doom loop. Because eventually, when, when you're 18, when you're 21, when you're... Man, eventually that thing breaks up. Eventually that, that relationship falls apart or, or something goes just wrong. And so instead of learning increasing bonding and increasing trust and increasing love and increasing joy, what you learn is not to trust these chemicals. What you then learn is not to be vulnerable because it leads to pain. You learn uh, not to trust somebody because it leads to, to crushing anxiety. And so that grows and, and bonding is dismissed. I don't want to bond with you. And physical pleasure becomes separated from whole life intimacy. And so then we have empty sex that leads to empty marriages. And the next step of this, as we get even more bright and cheery, becomes sexual addiction. It's the same path as food addiction. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit that it's out there, but it's the same thing. It's food addiction, drug addiction, any addiction. When we separate something from its design and then we abuse it, addiction is not far off. Methadone is prescribed to help people get off of something. When it's then abused, it becomes its own addiction. Right? A cheeseburger is part of your sustenance for the day. You can argue as to whether or not that's the best thing you could eat. But if you eat a cheeseburger in moderation, that's probably a pretty decent thing. If you abuse the cheeseburger and you have 12, not as good. You see how the slope goes. When you separate something from design and abuse it, addiction is not far off. How did we get there? Culturally, we've embraced a lie. That sex is this unavoidable, natural drive. And so we don't push back as a result. Well, it's just an unavoidable, natural drive. And you, you can try to turn it off, but it's just there. And so we don't push back. When advertisements sell it to us on television, when, when, they, when we're sold sex as a visual product or a physical product, or, or we're just shown it so as to sell us something totally unrelated, when a Victoria's Secret commercial comes on in my house, when we were watching TV, I don't know if she even notices anymore. I look at my wife. Not because I'm like the world's greatest human being, because I understand how my brain works. I understand how God wired me, and I say, I'm, I'm not looking at her like, oh, you're so much better and more wonderful, and they've got nothing. Like, I just look at her as if to say, my eyes are for you. Because there are young wonderfully, beautifully, gorgeously made women in almost no clothing on my television. And that's not good for me. That's good for me. But it has to be a conscious choice. You have to take that thought captive. You have to take that moment captive and say, I refuse to be sold that lie. 
David Robinson was a famous basketball player for the San Antonio Spurs in the late 80s all the way through 2003. Famous for a lot of things, including his Christian character. And, and unlike a lot of guys who professed it and then kind of wayward once they got in the NBA, he was, he was all about it. And there was an article in Sports Illustrated that he got made fun of widely for in the 90s when it came out that when the, the, the dancers, the silver dancers, they called them, um, the Spurs dance team went onto the floor and did their gyrations, which when you look at it objectively, you go, there are women in not much clothing doing gyrations on this basketball court. Okay, that's interesting. When they would do that, when most players in the huddle would take a peek and see what's happening, David Robinson sort of famously always had his back to them. He said, I want my wife to be able to see that any time they're there, I'm not there for them, I'm there for her. And other players would make fun of him. He's soft. He's not a man. David Robinson said, I understand. I'm for my wife, and she is for me, and all of this stuff is designed in a way that is not in line with the design of the Father. And if it makes me lame, and it makes me a square, it makes me soft, whatever you think it makes me, let it make me. David Robinson is approaching his 50s, and he's really successful, still happily married. He's a pretty good guy. But he understood this, and he took a stand. So we have to be able to see things around us and recognize them for what they are and prioritize the relationship that God has asked us to prioritize. The new libertine says, be yourself. Sex is an unavoidable drive, and so just adopt a casual attitude. Sex is a consumer product. So, so just, just go with it. It's, it's where society's going. So taking a casual attitude with sex doesn't change the heavy implications and consequences that come with it. Some of you in here are gun owners. I think you would agree that handling a gun loosely and more casually does not make it safer, but much more dangerous. In the right hands, it's a great tool. Handled loosely and casually can be a very dangerous thing. So it is with sex. We have to be vigilant to reject the cultural and consumptive selling of it to us as a casual product for casual enjoyment. It's just sneaking into your life. The new ascetic today says that, see, see, we told you 2,000 years ago, sex is bad, it is evil. It's unavoidable, but it's evil. And so then that side will adopt the attitude that sex is the enemy. This oppositional attitude doesn't change reality either. But it rejects God's design, it rejects God's creation, and it risks in relationship and beyond. Because the solution to overeating cannot be starving oneself. Right? Neither are true. Take it casually or starve ourselves of it. It's find it where it's designed and embrace it there. One dysfunction doesn't fix another. God's plan wasn't flawed. God created sex and the body, and he said these are good things. And so God's design and his desire is clear. So our prayer as a community, our prayer as parents, our prayer as married people, as single people, as as single again people, Our prayer is, God, help me see with this framework that you've created. Help me see this thing as you intended it. Help me find fullness in that design, whether that's in marriage or outside. Help me find fullness in your design. As a community, we have to be willing to talk openly and to talk plainly. My children know what the parts of the body are. Some people would disagree. Oh, you shouldn't tell them that until they're older. I want my kids to know what to call what, to know what's a danger, to know what's appropriate. And so very young, my children know all these parts. 
we're trying to foster a culture in my home of openness and plainness and honesty and clarity. And we need that community-wide with every issue, but this one in particular because it's so detrimental when it lays in the shadows. Talk plainly about our needs. Talk plainly about our fears. Embrace this radical vulnerability. So for couples, what's your application? Good. Engage. Re-engage. Talk about it. Confess it. You know what? I I think I fell on this side of that dividing line. I, I think maybe I've actually let this seep into... I don't know. Singles. If you're looking ahead to being married, reject a culture of cheap consumption. It's a lie. If you're single and not looking forward to being married, you say, you know, I'm single, been there, done that, don't want to do it again. You can have the same rejection. I reject a culture that would tell me that that's what makes me who I am. Because God's designed me for a purpose a plan for everybody. If you are in trouble already, don't suffer in silence. This is something that in years past and decades past that the pastor would look at the men in the room and he'd say, if you're suffering in silence, if you have addiction, if you have a problem, if you're suffering with lust, and that's not the case. We're finding out more and more it was never the case, but it isn't confined to men. Statistically, we're shown that just as many young females are engaged in all of the destructive behaviors surrounding sex as young males. Their brains are wired differently. They're knit up differently. And so there's different ways to to counsel and help and, and plan for solutions. But everybody, don't suffer in silence. Don't explain it away. Don't justify it away. It isn't just a season. So what I want to offer you as we close this series is that um, no matter where you are in your relationship, As a married person, single person, anywhere on the outside of that, there's help. We started by talking about what a marriage is supposed to be. Somebody nods their head and goes, yeah, we could use some help, but the pride is in us going, yeah, but we don't want to go there. Let's just keep going the way we are. There's help. We're struggling with, with, Tim comes up and talks about conflict. And some people in the room would go, yeah, we really have some ugly conflict in my house, but you know what, I don't really want to expose that to anybody. We'll, we'll get through it. It's just a stage. Get help. Craig talks about parenting. The stress that can come with parenting, not just little ones, but adults who go their own way. And if that's something, there's help. We have resources. We have counseling help. We have finances. If that seems to be a burden for you, we have a way to do it confidentially so that you don't have to be seen as a strange person in the community that, you know, maybe has a problem that no one else in history has ever had. Because the odds are everyone else has experienced some form of that. And so I want to invite you to help. If you're doing great in your marriage, man, cheer that on. Celebrate that. Celebrate it loudly. Encourage others. Find a way to spread the blessing. If there's something that's not right, we have a, a way forward for you that can be dignified and holistic and can help you that years from now, you will be one of the testimonies in the room. I, I can look across the room and, and, and I, I don't stop with my eyes because I don't want to out anybody, but there are testimonies that have personally impacted me 
When people say, we were here, I did this, this is what I was up to, this is what I saw, this is where our marriage went, and God brought us through it. And none of those testimonies ever indicates that they did it through sheer will and white-knuckled trying. Every single time someone humbled themselves and says, I needed help, and we submitted ourselves to this thing, and our marriage is better than it's ever been. My life is better than it's ever been. The addiction is gone. The what, I, I've heard these stories from you. So if you want to email me, and that would be the safest way for you to do it, you can do that. Kyle at bgcovenant.org. You can send that email. You don't have to tell me what's wrong. I could use some help. I'll be like, let me send you to some people that we know and trust. My prayer for you is that you would have endurance on the journey, that you would have grace in the struggle, that you would have guarded eyes and pure hearts, that we collectively would have joy and triumph. Part of being a community, part of being a family is we do this together. And that means we struggle together. That means we pick up each other together. That when someone falls, we carry them the next mile until they can walk again. And so our community groups are a great place for this. Struggle together. Be vulnerable. Struggle well. And then know that at the end of the day, this place exists to make us whole and stronger so that we can take this love and this grace and this beauty and this joy and extend it to a world that is broken and doesn't even know it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. Father, you're an incredible creator. We acknowledge uh, that we don't often think of that. But as the, the flowers start to bloom in spring and the days warm up, God, I pray that we would see creation everywhere again. You would remind us of your grace in it. Father, as we look at our partners, for those who are married, God, I pray that we would see the glory of your creation. Father, and as we deal with things that are difficult, things that have baggage and history, God, I pray that uh, we would be embraced by your grace as we do it. But Father, that we would do it with humility and vulnerability and honesty. God, you ultimately became vulnerable for us. In the perfect picture of what we are to be for each other, you sent Jesus, who was crucified, naked and unashamed, who took our sin and took our worst. He was fully vulnerable for us that we might be fully known to you. We might be made whole and redeemed, that our sin might be taken away. And so, Father, I pray that that spirit would not be absent from our relationships that we would see others and we would emulate our Christ in vulnerability and humility and service and sacrifice. And Father, in doing so, that we would honor you and we would remember that we are yours because you have called us so. We are your sons and your daughters. We are your children. And so, Father, give us endurance for the journey. Give us grace when we fail. And God, give us joy in those little moments of celebration all along the way. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Communion, the Lord's Supper.